1 Kings 19, even God's servants can despair. Even God's servants can despair. 1 Kings 19. You should have the little study guide too. If you don't, raise your hand. Everybody get one? Okay. Verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. The prophets of Baal, that is. We saw that last week. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael 
shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Dr. John R.W. Stock once said, the occupational hazard of Christian discipleship and Christian ministry is discouragement. You know, few men have had the impact on the gospel that Charles Haddon Spurgeon had. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. Obviously, he pastored there in uh, London. Uh, the people kept outgrowing the church. They finally moved into a church that seated 6,000 people. And even at that, he was preaching to 10,000 people every week. And his sermons being hand transcribed about 25,000 copies a week. Over the course of his ministry, he probably spoke to some 10,000. 10 million or more people. And yet, Spurgeon was a man who was given to depression. Uh, he once wrote a friend, he said, I've never lost my calm faith in God, but at times I've been so depressed that the cable has been strained to the limit. Probably if Charles Spurgeon were alive today, just from reading about his life, he would have probably been diagnosed with clinical depression, perhaps. You know, researchers today have observed that those who are involved in careers that deal heavily with the management and leadership and counseling of people tend to be particularly prone to emotional exhaustion. Maybe that's in part because the problems of people are never ending. And also because people can deeply disappoint us as well. Uh, a lot of people start well, they don't finish well. They can make promises and fail to keep those promises. But whatever the reason, dealing with people all the time can be exhausting work and can be disappointing work. Uh, all of this has special application to anybody in ministry because in the church, we're in the people business and we're supposed to be investing our lives in other people. Now, I want us to see a character tonight who certainly dealt with discouragement and depression. Uh, you know, sometimes we think the, the people in the Bible, uh, the saints in the Bible, were flawless or superheroes or something like that. But, you know, when we look at their lives on the pages of Scripture, uh, we see how human they were. 
I mean, just look at Abraham and Sarah. We've come through a time of studying about them. Jacob, look at him. Uh, all the problems that the saints in the Bible had. Uh, we can talk about King David and all of his ups and downs in his life. I mean, on and on, you can see how the people in the Bible that we put a hero status to, uh, they had feet of clay too, didn't they? You know, James writes in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man of like passions to us. And we see that in this passage tonight. Uh, again, here, here was a hero for God. And he very much had feet of clay. And we're reminded of however successful we might be in the Lord's business, we've got to keep our eyes on God and not man. Now, the first thing I want you to see tonight, the fear of Elijah after a momentous experience. The fear of Elijah after a momentous experience. Now, we would think that after that great victory on Mount Carmel, uh, what, what would we suppose Elijah's mood would be? Elation, exactly. And we would expect that instantly he would start making all kinds of sweeping reforms. But this isn't what happens. Uh, when Ahab tells Jezebel what all has happened, what, she vow, what does she vow to do? She's going to kill Elijah. You know what? I think this shows how hardened and how wicked Jezebel is. Don't you think here the testimony of fire falling from heaven? That would kind of get your attention, you would think, right? Does, yeah. But it appears it didn't faze her one bit. In fact, it made her even more calloused. Uh, it's amazing. And so she's angry. She can't get at God, but who can she get at? God's prophet. And so that's who she's going to go after. And Elijah knows this is no idle threat because as we saw in our text last week, what was Jezebel doing and what did Obadiah do? Does anybody remember? Hmm? She was killing the prophets of the Lord and Obadiah, a prophet of the Lord, who apparently served in Ahab's court, he was taking the prophets by fifties and hiding them in caves and feeding them and looking after them so Jezebel couldn't get a hold of them. And so when she says, I'm going to get you, Elijah, and you're going to be just as dead as those prophets of Baal, that's no idle threat. She's proven that she would kill servants of God in a heartbeat. Well, verse 3 says that when Elijah learned, or learned of her threat, he was afraid. Now, that's not the picture you would normally get of Elijah. I mean, he's just faced off against the prophets of Baal. Great, tremendous courage. But nonetheless, he's afraid now. And so he heads south to Beersheba, which was in the southern part of the southern kingdom. And uh, this would have been quite a journey in and of itself. 
And then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. Charles Spurgeon that I mentioned at the beginning said, here's Elijah retreating from a defeated enemy. Who does that? Who retreats from a defeated enemy? But what's Elijah doing right here? He's walking by sight instead of walking by faith. And here he is under a broom tree or a juniper tree, which was a tree that grew in the wilderness and was known for, for giving herdsmen out in the fields and travelers some pretty good shade from the desert sun. And so he finds a juniper tree. He sits down uh, to find some shade, and he's ready to die. He's ready to just throw in the tire. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's scared. And he thinks he's all by himself. He's alone. No, nobody else is taking a stand for God. He's alone in, in the land. And so again, he's just ready to, to quit. Now, as, as I've already mentioned, after such great accomplishments, this sounds surprising. But it just goes to show that even after experiencing highs, we can be subject to lows. You know, I, I know of a minister. I, I, I don't know him personally. He was a, a friend of the pastor that I used to work with. And this guy was a pastor down in South Carolina. And by any measure, uh, his church was one of the fastest growing and largest in the state of South Carolina. And this gentleman worked morning, noon, and night. They walked in one day to find him curled up in his office. Uh, on the floor of his office, he had a nervous breakdown. He was absolutely exhausted, and he had to quit. Well, that's Elijah at this point. Uh, he not only wants to give up his prophetic role or his prophetic office, but he's ready to die. I mean, folks, this is getting pretty low, isn't it? You'd rather just go ahead and die. Uh, he looks at his life. He looks at accomplishments. And though he's seen God work, uh, he really doesn't see, apparently, that in the end he's accomplished that much when it comes to delivering the land from paganism. Now, we can say a couple of things about Elijah at this point. Uh, he's exhausted. I've already pointed that out. He's, he's disillusioned. I mean, he's thinking the battle against Baalism and against Ahab and Jezebel is over. And I mean, come to find out, Jezebel is just ready to get started in, in this fight. And Elijah's perspective is distorted. He's now looking at how big his problems are and how small God is. I mean, you got to wonder how all this happened. But it did. Don't you and I do the same? Uh, do we ever look at problems and see our problems being bigger than God? Sure we do. Do we look at certain people maybe and see them as being invincible and that not even God can help us? Maybe you've got an enemy at work or something or school and even God can't help you against this person. Maybe that's what you've been thinking. 
You know, if that's the world vision we end up with, what are we going to do? We're going to despair. We're going to be discouraged and depressed, just like Elijah. You know, I was reading again today about the shift, the radical shift in American culture. And all that the church is up against in this age of postmodernism and the challenges we face there. And it just seemed like nobody really believes anything anymore. And it seems like we're outnumbered and we're getting more outnumbered by the day, right? It's discouraging. You start thinking, you know, am I making any kind of difference in the world? Whatever. Let Elijah be a warning to you that given the right amount of discouraging things, what he is facing here could happen to anybody. You're not the only one it's ever happened to if you're going through something like this. And that's why if you have a great Sunday school teacher, you have a great deacon, uh, somebody who just is a blessing to you, encourage your teacher. You know, let them know you appreciate them and how much their efforts mean to you. Because you never know the discouragement they might be going through. Well, the second thing I want you to see, the grace of God in ministering to one who is his servant. Look at what God does. Does God get angry at Elijah at this point? No. What's God do? He lets his servant rest. And then he feeds him. And then on top of that, who does he send to Elijah? An angel. You know what I'm reminded of? I'm reminded of how the Bible says of Jesus in the wilderness after he faced the temptations that the devil hurled at him. And uh, finally he said, Satan be gone, and Satan left him. Uh, the scripture says, then the angels ministered to Jesus. There he was in the wilderness, and the angels ministered to him. And that's what the angel here is doing with Elijah. And along with the rest, along with the food, notice that God gives him a word of instruction also. God has a place he wants Elijah to go. He wants him to eat again because he's about to go on a long, long journey all the way down to Mount Horeb. This, of course, is Mount Sinai on the Arabian Peninsula. What else happened there in the past? Ten Commandments, exactly. This is the mountain that Moses went up on. God gave the Ten Commandments. Well, when Elijah got there, he went into a cave. Some speculate that this might have been the very same cleft in the rock that God hid Moses in so God could see the so Moses could see the back of God as he passed by. Speculation, we don't know that. But God did for Elijah here what he did for Moses. In God's grace, he begins asking Elijah for some clarification. Uh, look at the end of verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, what was God saying? Probably God was saying, 
Elijah, just look at yourself. How have you gotten to this low of a point? God is trying to get Elijah to see that he's lost perspective. Elijah is taking his eyes off of God and he's completely lost perspective. And it's like he's really lost out on the significance of everything that's just happened there on Mount Carmel. Now at this point, Elijah doesn't answer correctly. He says what he does in verse 10. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. That's true. He says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Well, not all of them. They've thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's, he's, he's lost perspective to the point that he's not even seeing things altogether correctly. Because as he's going to be reminded in a little bit, he's not the only one left. He's not the only one in the land that's being faithful. There's others too. 7,000. 7, you know, it just goes to show that uh, we get so low, we get so discouraged that we don't begin looking at things properly, right? We lose perspective. They focus on stuff. Yeah, exactly. They start focusing on themselves and having a pity party. Uh, you know, it, it, it might have been bad, everything that happened. But a great victory has just occurred, too. Surely he ought to build off of that. You know, I see this often, though, in people who are discouraged. They'll come to you and they're, they're ready to give up their class or they're going to find another church and they'll just say things like, I don't have any friends around here anymore. Well, that's not true at all. And you know it's not true, and they know it's not true. But they start saying things like that. They've just gotten in despair, and they don't see anything properly anymore. That's kind of what's going on with Elijah here. Uh, God then has him go out and stand on the mountain. A strong wind occurs, then an earthquake, then a fire, then a gentle breeze. All of those signs in nature would have been reminiscent of God's presence, both at Mount Sinai earlier with Moses, and would have been reminiscent of God's fire falling on Mount Carmel. But this time, as we see, even though God calls these great things in nature, all of them, but the last one was not, they were not the way God was going to speak to Elijah. He let him see great things, but he wasn't going to speak to him through those great things. He spoke to him through the whisper or the gentle voice or the still small whisper, however your translation may put it. Uh, I mean, folks, just, just think about this a minute. What's going on here? God won a victory at Mount Carmel through a great display of power, but the land wasn't going to be delivered through a continuous chain of miracles like this. How is the land going to be delivered? 
the word of God, the voice of God. He speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. And it's going to be the voice of God, the word of God, what God is going to use on a regular basis to bring change to the land. Isn't that how God works? You know what, folks? God, God may choose at points to work in some great displays. And we see that in Scripture that He has. But how is the consistent way? What is the consistent way that we see how He works? His Word. I mean, it's, it's the same thing he's going to tell Ezekiel, right? When Ezekiel sees that valley of dry bones, and, and God says, can these bones live again? Ezekiel says, only you know God. And he takes the man of God, he says, preach to these dry bones. A man of God preaching the word of God, and what happens? Life happens. You see, that's an analogy how God works. The people of God sharing the Word of God. And God using that to bring about His purposes. That, that's the mainstay way of how God works. We don't go out every morning and look up at the sky and see God opening the sky and chariots of fire coming down and God delivering stuff to us and all that. But when we open His Word and we read His Word, He speaks through this and this is how change comes. And this is the main way that God works. Rick, you were going to say something, I believe? I have a question. Is there any significance to where uh, Elijah Wrapped his face in his cloak. Maybe just trying to conceal himself. Maybe a little bit of shame, a little bit of embarrassment, perhaps. And maybe just wrapping his face, thinking about, am I going to see God? I mean, you know how sometimes like the terror cloak or something. Sure. I just didn't know that was something specific. Right. Could they? Could they? Um, Again, the, the land was going to be delivered by the Word of God. God speaking. But folks, there, there, again, there is that lesson for us here. Sometimes we think if God is using us, then we ought to be seeing great things happen around us all the time, right? I mean, earth-shattering things. If God's using me, man, just earth-shattering things are going to be going on. And that's just not reality. That's just not reality. God works greatly over a long period of time and in many different places. And people sometimes might not even see what he's doing. It may not even be dramatic. It may not be the earthquakes and things like that. But God's working. He's working quietly, but He's working definitely. And we need to understand that. 
Plus, Elijah's going to be reminded that at Mount Horeb, God called a new people, remember? God called Israel when he delivered them out of Egypt, led them to Mount Horeb. He, he called a new people there. He gave them the law. So if God had called a people out of Egypt, taken them to Sinai, given them the law there before taking them into the promised land, Elijah ought to be reminded in that same place, on that same mountain, that it's not curtains for Israel. The same God who called them under Moses and was leading them into the wilderness and then into the promised land, the God who formed and called his people by taking Elijah to that very spot is like he's saying to Elijah, Elijah, they're still my people. I'm not done with them yet. You're not the only one, Elijah. And Elijah should have been reminded of that in that place. He should have been reminded that God finishes what he starts. So God's grace to Elijah is that he lets him rest. He gives him some nourishment. He takes Elijah to the place where Elijah can be reminded of where God spoke to his people before. And he's encouraged. God's going to speak to his people again. He's going to continue to be active in the lives of his people. He's not giving up on them. And then the third thing I want you to see, the equipping of God for his servant to get busy again. Verses 15 and following. The equipping of God for his servant to get busy again. Elijah is to go all the way back to the northern kingdom where he has fled from. He's to get back in the fight. God's going to send him back into the battle. And this time, though, God's going to use him a little differently. He's going to anoint two new kings, one in Syria, one in Israel. And then he's going to anoint a new prophet, Elisha. Now, what's significant here? What's been Elijah's concern? What was in the land? Paganism, through Baalism. Through these two kings that he's to anoint and through Elisha, whom he is to, to anoint, time it is all said and done, Ahab and Jezebel are going to be goners. They're going to be dealt with. They're going to be wiped out. And... God is going to use all of the above also to continue dealing a death blow to Baalism. So what God is doing is he's raising up some help for Elijah on the one hand, but he's also making it clear to Elijah that he's not the only one in the battle. And here's another lesson for Elijah too. His role has been critical, but he's not going to be the one to finish the battle. His part was important, but everything's not on his shoulders. God's going to raise up new kings and a new prophet, also preserving 7,000 others 
And God is going to ultimately win this battle. Now, what do we need to see there? That the battle is ultimately God's. Right? He will do what needs to be done and He will raise up who needs to be raised up. So His work will be done. God's hands are not tied. God's not defeated. God is not unable to make things continue going forward. So again, He's given Elijah some help and helping Elijah to see you're not in this alone. And I'm having you pass the torch. You know, I've started with you. I've used you greatly. What you did was valuable, had purpose. Now I'm going to move on and let another prophet finish what I've started in you. And you know, sometimes that's what God's servants need when they're discouraged. They need to know they're not alone. There's help. It's not all on their shoulders. Now I want you to notice the verses dealing with the call of Elisha. When Elijah finds Elisha, he's plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. Now that's probably indicative that Elisha comes from a pretty well-to-do family. Because most families would have only had a pair of oxen. He's got 12. So it's probably comes from a family that's got a good many resources. Hmm? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, Elisha recognizes what's going on here. He knows what's happened by Elijah putting his mantle on him. He's being called to become Elijah's disciple. Now, don't misunderstand verse 20. When he says, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? Elisha's not making excuses, and Elijah's not rebuking him. Elijah's basically saying, go and do as you say, and then consider God's call. It's not my call, it's God's call. And so go and make closure, and come on. So Elisha kills the oxen, makes a fire with the implements of the plowing, What's this show that Elisha is doing? He's leaving his livelihood. He's burning bridges behind him. I mean, folks, this, this is a demonstration of dedication and commitment. He's killing the oxen and burning the plows and the implements of farming. He's getting rid of his own life, making it so... You know, if things get inconvenient for him, you know, he can't just say, oh, I'll just go back and pick up where I left off. No, he's getting rid of all that. It's, it's, it's a commitment. It's a commitment. It's like Cortez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when Cortez landed uh, uh, his ship there outside of Mexico, you know the story, don't you? About Cortez, when he invaded Mexico. Okay, when when they got off the ship and took the little boats and all to the to land his troops and they were marching forward into Mexico, he gave Cortez gave the order all the big ships the soldiers had just unloaded off of they looked back and they're burning down in the sea. 
Cortez had him set on fire. What was the message to his men? There's no turning back. There's only one way to go now. I've taken away your method of retreat. Yes, exactly. They forsook all. They forsook all. And what Jesus say in Luke chapter 9? If you put your hand to the plow and look to the left or right, you're not fit for service in my kingdom. Remember that? Somebody's trying to dream. We're going to have you answer it. We're going to listen to you. Share Jesus. And then we're going to critique you on how you did. Whose phone's ringing? Answer it. Share the gospel. We're listening. They already hung up, but... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good excuse. I have turned all the sounds down, and it still doesn't ring. So somebody needs to teach me. It, yeah, I'm sorry, what now that last part? So somebody needs to teach me. I'm failing at my job. <laughs> Was that the underlying message? Poor girl, she has to help me <laughs> Yeah, Luke chapter 9, though. Uh, I'll follow you, Lord, anywhere you go. Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Translation If you follow me, you may not have a place to call home and lay your head either. Are you, are you sure you're ready? Counting the cost. Jesus tells us of all that we've got to count the cost if we're going to follow. We're, we can't follow him on our terms. Or when it's convenient for us. Or when it's to our liking. Again, that's what all Elisha is expressing here. He's cutting ties with his past. He's ready to move on. Be a disciple to Elijah. Learn whatever it is God has for him. He's ready to be a prophet. Well, some lessons I want to leave you with tonight. Even the strongest people can be driven by fear rather than by faith. Even the strongest people can be driven by fear rather than by faith. Second lesson. When we allow people and problems to become too big in our sight, God can seem too small. Third lesson, victory in one battle does not mean that the war is won. Fourth, God's able to raise up more to help in the task. In fact, according to Matthew 9, we're to be praying and asking God to raise more up. To raise up more. Matthew 9 is where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That he'll thrust out workers into his harvest. Number five, beware of the illusion that the Christian life will always be easy. Mm -hmm. 